Again, thank you, Tim, and thank you uh, for joining with us this morning. If you've already gone ahead and, and gotten your Bible and brought it there to where you're uh, uh, watching the live stream, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to John chapter 17. Again, the Gospel of John. Chapter 17, we're going to read the entirety of the 26 verses there in just a moment. Uh, I'll remind you that we are uh, in the midst of our Easter series, or maybe if you have kind of a, a liturgical church background, uh, the, the uh, season of Lent. We're in the, the midst of the season of Lent. Uh, and so uh, we have been preaching in preparation uh, for the celebration of what we often refer to as Easter. And uh, I think more appropriately, we should think of it as Resurrection Sunday. Uh, the Sunday that our Lord rose from the grave, demonstrating his authority over uh, death, hell, and the grave. And so, uh, again, it's with those things in mind that we have been in the, this series. And again, we're in the fourth part today of uh, the triumph through tragedy. Again, make no mistake that uh, for... Uh, the people of Jesus' day to uh, reject him, again, uh, to despise him and to ultimately crucify him is indeed a, a tragedy. But again, it's a tragedy that uh, indeed was ordained by God. It was the methodology God would use to place his son on the cross upon which he would die for our sins. And so upon his resurrection, there was the, the proclamation of his triumph over this great tragedy over the tragedy of the sin of this world of forgiveness of those sins for all who would ever believe in him and so as we come to to John 17 we often refer to this portion of scripture and uh, again the folks at North Clay know I often refer to passages as one of my favorites well this is one of my favorite passages and it's often referred to as the real Lord's Prayer what we often refer to as the Lord's Prayer uh, is actually a model prayer for the disciples uh, prayed by Jesus. But in this prayer, we see uh, the very heart of Jesus Christ interceding uh, for his people. And so it can rightly be called his high, high priestly prayer, the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we will find that indeed he is interceding uh, for us as we work through this today. And so with those things in mind, Begin reading with me in verse 1 of the Gospel of John, chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given to him. And this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they kept have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I have come from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and 
yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, and that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Pray with me this morning. Father, once again, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for uh, the Spirit who inspired this truth, and we pray that that same spirit would be among us and within us here today. Uh, Give me uh, the ability to speak your truth and give those who are are listening today the the ability to hear that truth. And God, may your spirit uh, so work in our hearts, Lord, that we would obey, that these things would be applied to our lives. And Lord, If there is one that has never trusted in you as their Lord and Savior, how we would pray that on this day you would so work and they would believe. Lord, again, we ask that you bless this time together. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage that continues uh, Jesus' uh, discourse uh, among these uh, disciples uh, in the upper room just before they are to, to depart, across the Kidron Valley and Jesus will pray uh, alone in those final moments before uh, he would be betrayed and then arrested and and tried and uh, convicted falsely and ultimately hung on the cross. And so as they're preparing to depart, Jesus enters into this time of prayer, this time of intimate fellowship, of this communion with the Heavenly Father. And this is one of the most powerful portraits that we see uh, in Scripture 
of the relationship of uh, the Heavenly Father to His uh, beloved Son. And in this, the, this moment of, of, of great uh, passion, of, 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 of great uh, angst even over what lies ahead, we find that Jesus' concern is that the Father be glorified, that He be glorified uh, uh, in the work that He is going to do, and that those who follow after Him, those who believe, that they would be kept strong in the word of the gospel. In fact, uh, as we survey the passage, we will find really uh, a discussion of the entire sweep of redemptive history reaching back into uh, the time in eternity past before the world was created, the, the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in, in making the plan of redemption before the world was even created. And then again, Jesus Christ and thinking about the work of redemption that he's about to go and accomplish on the cross. And again, uh, the work of the Spirit uh, in applying uh, this truth to the lives of all who would believe. And so again, we see a, a grand landscape of redemption from past, present, and future. And the roles of, again, particularly in this passage of the Father and the Son and the accomplishment of our redemption. And so the passage really breaks down in three very simple ways. First of all, Jesus, in verses 1 through 5, prays for himself. And then in verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. And then in the final portion of this text, in verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for us. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you find in these verses that Jesus was praying for you in these final moments before he would be crucified. So let's look, first of all, again, back in verses 1 through 5 as Jesus prays for himself. And I would say that if Jesus prayed for himself, how much more so we as his followers need to pray for ourselves. Now again, I know that we're praying that, that we won't get sick, and that's a fine thing. We're praying that, that our personal finances won't be wrecked in this difficult time. And that, that's a good thing to have in mind. But how we need to pray that God would protect us from spiritual harm, that we would grow in God's grace and that we would be effective witnesses to his gospel in the world. And so it's a right thing to pray rightly for ourselves. Jesus begins by saying that the hour has come. Again, that which was planned before all worlds were created is now uh, coming into the time of its occurrence. And, and Jesus has been prepared he has been teaching the disciples and telling them that we're going to Jerusalem I've, I've come into the world for this particular purpose to go and to lay down my life no one is going to take my life from me I'm going to lay it down and then I'm going to take it up again for whom for my sheep for my people and so this time is upon us that I will accomplish the purpose for which I was born for which I entered into time and space and history and then we see in verse 2 Jesus reference to the authority granted him by the father this may allude back to uh, Daniel chapter 7 and verse 14 we see this this uh, picture of the ancient of days the the heavenly father entrusting to the son of man a kingdom and dominion that he shall rule forever certainly we see 
different dimensions of, of God's sovereignty at work and in play in our world uh, today. There will be a day, though, that Jesus will rule and he will reign completely. And these great enemies of sickness and sin and death will absolutely be eradicated from our presence. Make no mistake about it. The Son is still sovereign. And certainly, uh, it begs the question, why things such as the coronavirus? And I will simply say this, and it's kind of a paraphrase of Martin Luther in regards uh, to the devil. Luther said, you know, that the devil is God's devil. He only goes as far as he can go. Let me tell you something. The coronavirus is God's coronavirus. It came into the world through the sin and rebellion of human beings, but God is completely sovereign over this coronavirus. I often like to remark, if you can think with me for just a moment, that many times as, as the, the sun has begun to, to shine in, in our spring days and, and maybe we stand and, and we see the light streaming through the windows of our home or our office, and unfortunately we see little specks of dust dancing in the, in the sunlight. Let me tell you something. God is sovereign over every speck of dust just as much as he is sovereign over every star and every, the forest planet, the forest universes that are in existence. God is sovereign over these things. And folks, that is a word of encouragement. That is a word of hope. And so authority has been granted to the Son. The Son will return to function as the judge of all of those who have rejected him but he has come to accomplish and grant eternal life to those given to him this is a language that john has employed before back in chapter 6 and verse 37 jesus says that that all the father gives to me will come to me and i will raise them up at the last day again jesus christ has been given this great gift of a people by God himself, a people that will love him and they will serve him forever. They, they will rejoice in him in heaven one day because he has demonstrated his authority in working the work of redemption on the cross. And so Jesus goes on and says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. A lot of times we talk about eternal life and talk about heaven. We talk about eternal life as a, a quality of life that breaks into even a fallen world. And I agree uh, in the fallen world that, that we don't have to look very far to see suffering. And this suffering has an impact on us that, that distresses us, that, that troubles us. But in this world because of the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ we also may know the quality of eternity that namely being joy we will rejoice for all of eternity in the goodness and in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and so salvation ultimately can be said said to be this that we know the only true God this Greek word here for know is the word egno it is used to translate the Hebrew uh, found in Genesis 4.1 when it says that Adam knew Eve and she conceived. And so it is a word that speaks of a, a powerful intimacy. And so we have the great privilege of knowing intimately our God. We do not know him fully because we are yet 
finite and he is infinite but we can know him truly and we can trust him it would be somewhat like if we went out to the Atlantic Ocean and took one of our water bottles one of these uh, 20 ounce plastic bottles and said well I'm going to fill this bottle with the ocean well you can't put all of the ocean in that singular bottle but you can get a a representation of what the ocean is like you could scientifically measure and test it and know something about the ocean so we know something about God but we do not know everything about God in our finitude but we can know him truly and we can know him powerfully and the great thing about salvation is not only knowing about the true God and his son Jesus Christ and uh, the person of the Holy Spirit who's within us and among us, but we can know God powerfully and intimately. And so this is indeed eternal life that we know God as those disciples first encountered the Lord Jesus Christ and heard his message, again, that we know the one true God. And then in verses 4 and 5, Jesus speaks of this great reality that by his coming into the to the world he has glorified the father he has father he has followed a plan that had been put in motion that had been laid before the world was even created and so Jesus has glorified the father in his person in his excellence in his in his essence by by taking on humanity and being the perfect man he's glorified uh, the father he's glorified him in his obedience as he obeyed everything that God father has commanded he has glorified him by the words that he has spoken he has spoken truth he has spoken it in love he's spoken it graciously but he has spoken the truth in the world and he is glorifying the father in his work ultimately the work of his sacrifice the work of atonement on the cross at Calvary and so he has come into the world he has glorified the father and then in verse 5 one of the most beautiful concepts in all of scripture Jesus is going to be restored to the eternal glory that he enjoyed before his incarnation the apostle Paul looks into this in Philippians chapter 2 it speaks of Jesus humbling himself and taking this form of a servant, becoming as a man, entering our realm. And, and I think the idea is something that for all of eternity past, Jesus Christ, if you had been able to see him in heaven, you'd have said, that's God. He is glorious. He is spectacular. He is unbelievable. But, but that glory was laid aside and it was veiled with humanity if you if you saw him on the streets of Palestine you'd have thought he's just the carpenter's son he he he's just a, a peasant worker you would have not noticed anything that would have have attracted you to him as Isaiah notes in Isaiah 53 but upon this great act of obedience this great act of sacrifice upon being raised from the dead Jesus is going to be restored to this glory that is rightfully his and one day we shall see him in heaven and we shall see him in all of his glory I think I'm going to come back to that in just a moment let's look at this second issue here beginning in verse 6 Jesus prays for himself Jesus prays for his disciples for these 11 that have 
remained with him. But yet, in the very providence of God, and I believe it, it was a, there was an object lesson about to take place in the lives of these disciples. Most pointedly, in the life of Peter, but none of the other disciples were any better than Peter. None of them were any bolder, more courageous, any stronger in the face of, of Jesus' arrest. They all dispersed. They all left him alone. But Jesus intercedes for them. Again, as he specifically tells Peter, after, after you have fallen, after you have failed, after, after you have trusted in yourself and realized that you cannot do this thing apart from me, I'm going to restore you and I'm going to use you. I've got a plan for you. And so Jesus says that, that he has, again, manifested the name of the Father. All of the attributes, all of the things that God would have revealed in the world, he has done them to those disciples, to those that the Father had given him out of the world. Just a, a short aside here. One of the great realities of redemption, of the reality of the church, is that we are identified as the bride of Christ. And the interesting thing is that God has given to humanity the great gift of marriage. And to be sure, yes, it's for our enjoyment, for our pleasure. It's so that we wouldn't be alone, so that we can accomplish uh, the, the command to... Uh, rule the world by filling it, by populating it. It, it, is, it is a good gift to humanity. But I want you to understand this. Marriage in its ultimate purpose, its ultimate design, is designed to portray the love of the Father and the Son and the love of the Son for His bride. That's, that's why we, we stress so, so passionately the necessity of the permanence of marriage. It is a drama that displays the greatness of God in sending His Son into the world to claim a bride. In fact, in Genesis 2.24, we're told that the man shall leave his father and mother, and he shall take to himself a wife, and they shall cleave together, and they shall be one flesh. And again, this is what God did when he sent his son into the world because the son said, I will die to redeem my bride. And so marriage is a picture of, again, the, the man leaving his home to seek out the wife. Who gives the wife? The father of the bride is typical in, in all traditions. And so marriage is, is a drama. It is a portrayal of the gospel, of God's Son entering the world for the purpose of claiming a bride. And so that's what's being referred to here, is the Father had a people that He gave to the Son, known before the world was created, known out of all of the race of Adam, all who were fallen in Adam, all who rebelled in Adam, all guilty in Adam. But the Father has determined that He would give to the Son a bride out of this cesspool of fallen humanity. And so, they were gods. All people belong to God. All flesh is His, but He gave them to the Son as a love gift. And so, the Son has come, and He is He's instructed. He has taught them. They have heard Him. They have 
believed him, they know that he is the only begotten of the Father. Do they understand it fully? No. Because they could not have, they would not have acted as they did over these next few hours had they fully understood. But let me tell you, they would understand more fully after the day of Pentecost, after the resurrection, after the Spirit comes upon them on the day of Pentecost. They begin to put all the pieces together, all of the things recorded in the Old Testament, all the things that Jesus said and did. They got it. They understood it at that time. And so they, they know that Jesus has come from God, and, and Jesus has given them uh, the, the words that the Father has given to them. And then notice verse 9. Who's Jesus praying for? Notice how he says it. I am praying for them. I am praying for those that you've given me. I'm praying for these believers. I'm, I'm, I'm very targeted, very specific in my prayer. I am praying for these disciples, for this, this little flock that, that you've given to me. I'm not praying for the entirety of the world at this point. We'll say something about that in just a moment. But I am praying for for these disciples they they are yours and you have given them to me and again I am glorified in them they they have heard my words given from you for them and again they have brought you glory and so he prays he prays really five things there beginning in uh, verse 11 he prays first of all that they would be kept in the Father's name. Again, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. Again, the Son's desire is they, again, be, be kept in the, the truth of what God has done in the world and what God is going to do through them. And the Son is soon to depart physically from this world, but they are going to remain. So his desires, they be kept and that they be one. I'm going to say a little more about the unity of the believing body in just a moment. But that they may be one, one in truth, one in spirit, one in the, the working out of the purpose of God in taking the gospel in the known, into the known world. And again, he, he says to the Father, I, I kept them while I was with them. And now I'm praying that you would keep them. None have been lost except the one that was predicted and prophesied in Scripture. And then Jesus prays this in verse 13, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Here's Jesus. He knows he's about to die. He knows not only is he going to be abused by wicked men, but he is going to face estrangement from the Father. He is going to experience the, the wrath of the Heavenly Father. He is going to propitiate the wrath of God for those who, are, who will believe. He is going to suffer God's righteous justice. His holy judgment is going to fall upon him. He has some sense of, of what lies ahead. He speaks of his joy joy and he desires that his disciples know their joy and so they are in despair they're going to be in greater despair before it's all said and done but let me tell you something they will know 
even as they live out the implications of the gospel and they suffer for the balance of their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, this prayer will be answered. They will indeed know the joy of their Savior. Look here at verse 15, the fourth petition that Jesus prays. I have given them your world and the, your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. So, again, Jesus says, I'm not taking, it's not my plan just to take them out of this world. They're going to be, I'm going to leave this world, but I'm leaving these 11 men. My purpose is that they be fully integrated into the world for the sake of the proclamation of the gospel. So many times in the time, days of my discouragement and despondency, I, I have this kind of a daydream to, to go build a house on top of a mountain somewhere and just go be alone and nobody to bother me, nobody to answer to, nobody to deal with. And You know, I guess my first thought is that never ends very well for anybody. But the second thing is, that's not the will of God for his people. Not that we go off and just say, nobody bother me and I'm not going to bother anybody. But that you be in the world for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why you're here. Most of the things that God wills for his people will be perfected in heaven. But the one thing that you will not do in heaven is tell other people about Jesus Christ. And so he has left us here for the purpose of of fulfilling the citizenship of the kingdom of God, fulfill, completing the bride of His Son, Jesus Christ, of telling others this great message of the Son's work on the cross, this gospel of our salvation. And so, He does not take us out of the world. He commands us to go into the world. And I say that with a great deal of care. It's, a, uh, it's often been noted that we not be of the world, not take on its priorities, its characteristics, its agenda, but that we be in the world for the sake of the gospel. And so again, these disciples are going to be, they're going to remain when Jesus departs. And then he prays the fifth thing there in verse 15, that they be kept from the evil one. It seems like the more serious you become, about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the more likely you are to be targeted by Satan and his demons and the power of hell. It's a real power. There's a real person. There's a real devil. They're real demons. And believers are often assaulted by Satan himself or by the, his demons. They're, they're afflicted by these powers of hell. They're under the pressure of the the satanically designed world system, all of those are true. Satan is indeed the roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But he will never have the final word for the people of God, for those who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will overcome him. We will be kept from being defeated ultimately by Satan. And so Jesus prays, for those disciples. Don't take them out of the world, but keep them away. Keep them from being destroyed by the evil one. And then verse 17, Jesus continues to pray that they be 
sanctified. That they be sanctified in the truth. That they be set apart. That they be distinguished from the world. That they be distinct from the world. That they be holy people, which is indeed what we are. And the means that he has ordained through which we would be sanctified is his truth. I would submit to you that to see God's will accomplished in the life of the believer, it will be done primarily through the means of using his truth, applying it to your life, studying his truth. This, this word that we've been given, these 66 books that we refer to as the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, that is the word of God, that is his truth given so that we may be set apart and set aside to, be, to serve him. And so... We are set apart from the world for the holy purposes of God. We have been cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore we may serve Almighty God. We, we, we are fit to serve our King because of the sanctifying blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, just as the Son was sent into the world by the Father... The Father is going to send these disciples into the world. Just as he has set himself apart, consecrated himself for the work of redemption on the cross at Calvary, he has set them apart to go bear witness to these events, to proclaim this message of an incarnate Son of God who has entered this realm. He's lived in obedience to the Father. He has never sinned. He, he has never departed one step from the plan of the Heavenly Father that would take him to the cross upon which he would die for our salvation and be raised from that tomb of what we remember as Easter Sunday. And so they were sent into the world. They were set apart for a purpose, and I would submit to you this next group that Jesus prays for has been set apart. They have been sanctified for the same purpose. Again, verse 20, Jesus prays for us. He prays for the believers that come after him even 2,000 years after him, those that, that he would never meet physically in the sense of while he walked the streets of Palestine, but they would come to know his heavenly Father. They would come to know this great salvation. Jesus says that not only am I praying for these that you gave me, this small band of believers that have left everything, they've followed me, they've believed me, they've entrusted themselves into to my care, but I'm praying for those who believe in me through their word. And folks, if you are a believer here today, you're in this group because what have you done you have believed through their word their word is our new testament their, their word are these gospels that we uh, have been entrusted uh, have, have been entrusted to us their word again is their understanding of the work of the lord jesus christ their explanation for us their their word is the imperishable seed of the new birth that the Holy Spirit takes and, and works deeply into the heart of unbelieving men and women and boys and girls and brings this, this new life, this work of regeneration, this, this resurrection from spiritual death. It is accomplished through the work of those men, their writings, 
and their messages that we have recorded for us. And so Jesus prays for us. These succeeding generations of believers that have been impacted by the work of these original disciples. And so he prays for them as he prayed for those first disciples that there be unity, that, that, that they be one. It, it's, it's a fairly common thing for both believers and unbelievers to speak of the church as being disunified or ununified, that, that we're not one, that Jesus' prayer was not answered. Well, I would say his prayer is being answered. It will be perfected one day because of my own finitude, my sinfulness, uh, uh, and the finitude and sinfulness of every other believer. There are things that we find ourselves uh, fragmented over. But I want to submit to you this. First of all, we're unified in the fact that we were lost, that we were dead in trespasses and sin, and we were made alive through the proclamation of the gospel, through the work of the Spirit. We share that. We, we have been saved through the singular work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who has the hope of Christ believes those things, and those things we are unified. In fact, we could go further uh, than that. If you were to take the early creeds of the church, the Nicene Creed, the uh, Athanasian Creed, and the Apostles' Creed, you would find that most Christians over the course of the 2,000-year history of the church would agree on most of the central points, the central tenets of the Christian faith. We do disagree on secondary points, and sometimes it causes us to say, we're not going to be in the same fellowship. We're not going to be in the same denomination. And that, that is the way it's going to be until we're perfected. I always uh, like to say that my theology will not be perfected until the day I see Jesus. There are holes. There are flaws. I do not have the perfect understanding of God or His Word, nor does any other man. But one day we will understand perfectly, and we will be unified but we're unified in this we recognize there is only one hope in his name is Jesus Christ we are unified in that proclamation that confession that conviction and so they are going to be united in the truth of God's love then look at verse 24 again God's or Jesus' desire for the people that God is going or has given to him, and they will be redeemed in the course of human history through the proclamation of the gospel, through the work of the Spirit. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. What is heaven? What is the final aspect of salvation or the perfect dimension of salvation? Is that we see the glory of our resurrected Savior. I've seen a lot of books and other things over these last few years that uh, uh, make the claim that this individual or that individual has died and gone to heaven and they come back and they tell all kinds of fanciful tales usually about what uh, they saw. I don't know that any of them 
have spent their energies explaining that what they saw was the glorious Son in His glorious state alongside the Father. That disturbs me about those claims. It really does about the the reality and the accuracy of those claims. Heaven is simply this, that we see the glory of the Savior and we'll be satisfied. The Bible speaks of pearly gates, I suspect, and streets of gold and all of these things, and that's well and good. There may be some sense of a a great reunion with those that we love that have gone before us. I'm old enough that I have lost many that that I would long to see. But if my desire for heaven is, is fundamentally in my hope to see loved ones now departed, I am an idolater. I'm an idolater. My greatest hope for heaven is that I will see the glory of the Son. That I see my Savior. And in Him, I will be fully, fully satisfied. I, I will rejoice in Him. I will know the fullness of joy when I see Him. The there will be an overwhelming flood in my soul that that is just tide after tide after tide of joy, of the joyful experience of the glory of the Son. The few times in Scripture where we find this glory revealed, whether we go to Isaiah 6 and his vision in the temple or or the transfiguration with those few Uh, disciples or maybe a few other times where there's a kind of a glimpse through uh, a word or a deed of Jesus people are typically scared to death because again of our sinful finitude we can't fully fathom we can't fully comprehend we can't handle this great glory but one day one day we will revel in it every need will be met We will know the greatest of pleasures in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see dimly now this glory. We we see something, and and Paul gets at it in 2 Corinthians. And As we gather as believers and we look upon each other's face, and that's one of the tragedies of our not being able to physically gather together, is that our countenance, our faces should be marked with, with the transforming work of our Lord Jesus Christ and again that's an encouragement to one another as we see each other as we greet each other as we fellowship with one another we do see something of the glory of God in his transforming work of sanctification of his work of grace in the life of his believer but we will not see it fully and we could not handle seeing it fully until the day that we see him and we revel in him because we will be like him we will be able to handle this great glory and so heaven and eternity and the 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 very uh, purpose of salvation is to see the eternal glory of the son who entered our world and who humbled himself and set aside that glory and and suffered and died for our salvation Jesus concludes his prayer with this. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these few you've given me, 
they know you because I've made you known. And again, Jesus is going to do the, the greatest work of God in all of the course of history. He is going, he's going to the cross. He's going to be raised from the dead. It is the great testimony of God's love. It is the greatest revelation of who God is and what he desires for humanity. That being, again, the cross at Calvary. And so, again, may this, may this great love that the Father has had for the Son, he loved, the Father loved the Son so much, he would give to him a love gift of a people that he would redeem through his death on the cross. And he desires that, that the realities of this love dwell and empower his people until the day of his return. Now, we can see that Jesus prays for himself and he prays for those disciples that were there in that room with him that had been with him for those three years or so that he ministered and he certainly prays for us, those who believe, the bride of Christ, the church. We well, say, well, what about, what about the world? What about the unbelieving world? Well, there's two things that I would say about Jesus and his interceding, again, for uh, the world. The first thing we see is, again, in our text, in verse, verse 6. Jesus prays for the world in this sense. There are people in the world, even as I speak here today, there are people in the world who belong to the Father and in time and space, they're going to be saved through the proclamation of the gospel. There are people that the Father has identified in eternity past that the Son is going to save. They're going to be drawn, they're going to hear the gospel, and they're going to to be saved. So God is, or Jesus is praying for the people in the world who do not know yet know him as their Savior and Lord. The same thing in verse 20. I'm, I'm, I'm not just praying for these disciples. Now, I'm not really praying so much for the world, but I'm praying for those that you're going to save out of the world through the proclamation of this great message of my work on the cross, the gospel. Jesus Christ. But while John doesn't record this, I see also another great place where Jesus intercedes. He, he, he goes before the Father for the unbelieving world. It's recorded in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verse 34. As he hangs on the cross, as he's ridiculed by those around him, he prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Again, his prayer, I can, I can say to anyone who is alive today, anyone who would hear this message, that the desire of the Son is that you know the forgiveness of the Father through the accomplishment of the Son at Calvary. Jesus has prayed that. I found it interesting. I'm not a big fan of The Passion of the Christ, a movie made by... Mel Gibson, I'm not particularly a, Mel, a fan of Mel Gibson's theology or spirituality. But in that movie, it, it is said that he insisted that when Jesus was nailed to the cross, that his hand be in the picture uh, as one holding the spike that was driven into the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ because he understood that he 
like every other human being, was guilty of nailing the cross, nailing Jesus Christ to the cross. And that's us. We are guilty. And Jesus has prayed that it is his desire. Now, we can say a whole lot about the, 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 the various ways that God wills things. But I want you to know that it's God's will that none should perish, that all should come for, to repentance, that Jesus has prayed, Father, forgive them, because you don't know. You don't know the glory of God in Christ. And you will not know satisfaction. You will not know peace. You will not know rest the day that you trust the one and only Savior of the world, the one who is our high priest, the one who has prayed for us, prayed that our faith will not fail, and indeed it will not. Jesus, our high priest, has prayed for us. That prayer is being answered and will be answered one day when we see him in all of his glory when we see him with the glory that is rightfully his that was his before all worlds were created and we rejoice as his bride as his redeemed bride forever and ever and ever Amen. pray with me father once again how we thank you for this testimony of your truth we thank you for the power of this truth lord I have no power to convince or convert. Only you do. And so our prayer is that you would so work uh, in these words that they have been spoken in a way that can be understood. And they have, they have been consistent with the words written so long ago under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would use them. That you would use them as a word of encouragement to your children. And Lord, you'd use it as a word of salvation for those who do not yet believe. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.